to Podcast from the Edge. Welcome to Podcast from the Edge's bonus episode of our video game dev virtual happy hour with AAA vets Joe Quadera and Evan Skolnick. To recap, Joe, Evan, and I sat down and talked about how we got into video games and what advice we had to those who wanted to break in. During our conversation, Joe got curious about why game writing is so much more competitive than other game development disciplines. So he turned the tables on Evan and I and asked us some really smart questions to find out why so many people want to become writers, what being a professional writer actually means, and how having a strong narrative can elevate an entire game. The conversation that ensued was so rich with content, we decided it deserved its own episode. So grab a drink, because it's time for a bonus installment of Video Game Dev Virtual Happy Hour. I'm, I'm so curious, why are there so many game writers? I, I think, Joe, I mean, this is what, this is what we deal with. It's, you know, it's the double-edged sword, right? Is that, you know, everyone thinks they can write. And the fact is, everyone can write to a degree. Everyone can sit down in Microsoft Word and boot it up and start writing once upon a time. And they can probably write, pound out something that resembles a story. Whereas people can't just sit down and start coding. They can't just sit down and start working in Maya. Like there, there's a barrier to entry that is higher for those, some, in some cases much higher. It's one of the reasons that engineers get paid so much more is because it is very, there's just much more to get in the door. Now, uh, I think that's part of it. Uh, I think that's definitely part of it. And, and so it, for us, it becomes difficult because that also extends to other team members where they think that what we, what we do is really not that difficult because anyone can write. And so when we often come in uh, as a contractor, you know, and uh, you come into a project where they didn't have a writer on board, the team felt they could handle it. And and then only when they try to actually do it, you know, what good writing, when you're watching a great movie that's well written or, or anything like that, it looks effortless. It feels effortless. And that's the amount of work that went into making it look effortless like that is unbelievable. But someone who hasn't been through that doesn't know that. So I think part of it is Part of it is that the, the people, it probably feels like one of the easiest ways to get into games is through that low barrier vector. But the fact is, it doesn't mean everyone can do it well. Mm, okay. Yeah. Right, so Shannon, is, so yeah, yeah, let's hear Shannon. This is something I'm actually especially passionate about, and I can kind of be a jerk about a little bit. But this comes from being a working writer most of my adult life. You know, I always loved writing. I also, I also really loved painting. I wasn't as good at it. And the reason I understood I was really good at writing is because everyone would always ask me to write their papers. People started paying me to write their stuff, right? That's what my position in my whatever village I was in, it's like, whether it was marketing, press was, I mean, the amount of things I wrote from like a teenager, you know, through my early 20s, it was just whatever people needed because I, I had that skill set. And yes, everyone can write, but I think what people forget is that it's usually a secondary or tertiary skill set. I mean, I've had people be like, well, I write emails or I write journal articles for science, therefore I'm a writer. I'm like, no, you're a scientist. That's or that's your core, that's what you're, that's your value. You have like a PhD in biochemistry. Like I'm, you, you write a journal article, but that's a tertiary or secondary skill set that you have. Just like writing a professional email, if you're in sales or an executive or any other kind of operations, any other kind of field, we all have to communicate. 
it's like saying that I'm at, like everyone's a mathematician because most people can like you know add and subtract and do basic math and I think people forget that there is also an art there's also talent involved it's understanding language it's, and, it, and honestly it's not about making grammatical mistakes or or typos the best writers I know do that in fact they'll, they'll break grammar because they understand it it's it's about understanding story it's about being dedicated to your craft and it's about voice and, and it's like a huge one it's a really you can't teach it you can go to what? Wait a minute. What? <laughs> no, you Shannon. Can voice. Wrong. You. Wrong, Shannon. Yeah, you Evan. Know? You're like you're questioning yeah. Evan's entire line of work right now. You can no, that's but that's not true because there's still value to going to a writing program to learn what these things are, what they really are. But no one can teach you talent. Maybe someone can teach you how to find your voice a little bit more. Maybe I 100% disagree, but I want to hear Evan. Okay. I, I th I, no, I think, I think Shannon's right. The, the, you know, I can make anyone a better writer. I can't make someone a great writer. Right. That, that's, that's the difference, right? So I can generally elevate my students sometimes quite a bit from where they, where they come to me and when they leave me in terms of their ability to understand story and the principles of story and storytelling and writing. But I, I can't make any one of them into a great writer. Something within them has to be there first, and then I can help cultivate that. So I, I agree. Be broken inside. <laughs> but you can. But also, you can have the talent without the training, and talent without training can be just as useless um, <laughs> if you if you don't have someone to help guide you, uh, or or some some process that helps guide you and, and improve to improvement. Because no one, no one just suddenly is a fantastic writer. They have to practice and learn and get feedback. So. Well, I feel like it's like art, you know, like you can be nat naturally really talented at drawing or painting, but if you don't understand, like if you don't learn the techniques, if you're just, you're completely separated from all this amazing knowledge, your your evolution to get to be a great artist will be slower. You might not ever get there because you might not learn a technique that will bring you to the next level. Right. Or it might take you so long to learn something that, that, a, that, a, that, a, that a mentor could have taught you in, you know, one day. Right, it's, just, it's shared knowledge. You know, we can we can talk about being a talented writer and having voice, but that doesn't mean that you understand Greek tragedy or why there's a beginning, middle, and into a story, or what act breaks are, what character right. arcs are, which are really easy secondhand language that can really help you get to the next level as a writer. They're just tools, and if you don't understand what those tools are, you kind of can get lost in your own words. So, Very so Joe, what, like, this is not. I hope, hopefully, none of my incoming students are going to listen to this because I kind of going to give away something that I, that I, one of my many famous analogies that I put my students through to understand what it's like being a game writer. And one of the things I do is talk about music and I talk about in particular drumming and talk about how, you know, when I was a teen, I wanted to play in a band and I wanted to learn an instrument fast. And the instrument that looked the easiest to me was the drums. <laughs> um, because you could bang on them? Well, because, I mean, and, and frankly, they are easier than most. There's, there's no notes. Hey, uh, my father was a professional percussionist. I, They're very complicated. I, I, I know. I, I hear you. I, I, yeah, I hear you. I stay hear stay you. with me. Yeah, yeah. So, so I taught myself how to play the drums without any lessons on a cheap, crappy, you know, $50 drum kit. And I, I wasn't very good, but it was fun. And I learned that it's much more difficult than it looks, but it is still not as hard as being a lead guitarist. Right? It's a different skill set. It's a different skill set. It's totally it is, different. It is. But so what I'm saying is um, 
what I do is I bring my so but basically with with regard to no one picks up a guitar uh, and just thinks I can I can be a lead guitarist I can I can do the basics of lead guitar but you sit someone down at a drum kit and you know anyone can hit that snare with the stick in time with a with a song right. anyone and, and that's what I have them do actually and then I say this is what most people think drumming is the snare that's it and so once you start you know, layering in everything else that's involved, mm -hmm. even in a basic rock beat, you suddenly realize that most people can't do it. Right. And and that's what I, and yet it's still easier to get to that than to be a lead guitarist, for example. So like like an engineer would be my equivalent of a of a lead guitarist. That's why they get. That's why they're always near the front of the stage and get all the chicks. So um, it's such a great analogy because <laughs> I'm terrible at drums. Like I struggle so hard. Like I can get. A snare going. I can get get my left hand and my right hand playing for beats and like okay, whatever. Once that kick comes in, I I'm lost. It's like it's 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 like this is alien to me. I can't do it. It, it took me a year just to be able to play a basic rock beat. You know, basically a, a you know a, you know doom, 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 with the, with the hi hat going. One year. And, yeah, totally. Yeah, and and so because I had no one helping me. Right. And, I, I still play now. I'm still terrible. I, I'm better than I was then. I, I call myself Ringo level. So if, if Ringo can play it, exactly. I yeah, can yeah, play yeah. it. Yeah. And that's basically, anything beyond that is questionable. But, but my point is, is that you know, it, it is like game writing, drumming is somewhat simpler uh, than some of these other instruments. And so it is, it, you know, it is at least in games, it, it seems like it is a common vector point for people who don't want to learn how to program and don't want to learn how to do art, but they feel that they can take a swing at writing. And I think that's one of the reasons you see so many people who want to do it. I'm not saying that many of them aren't talented, because many of them are talented. But I do, I do think that the, bear, the, the low bar to entry does tend to foster a lot of hopefuls. That makes so much sense to me. It, but still, me being me and me not being a writer, I see so much value in good writers. And I can now see what you're saying of like, yes, there's a lot of people that consider themselves a game writer or get into that space and compete in that space. But even at my level of understanding of writing, I can tell that it takes a lot to be a good writer. And I can tell when I'm working with a good writer versus when I'm not working with a good writer. And that's, I don't know what the line is. I just understand, okay, this is a good, this, this writer is able to do magic <laughs> with my, <laughs> difficult problem and this writer just gives me barks that sound like i don't know back of the box and, like uninspired yeah. barks right and i think this goes back to the thing that you were going to disagree with but that's voice right the magic is art because anyone can to get you know can draw learn how to draw anyone can learn how to write properly but what makes a good artist is the voice and the vision they're bringing to it and their ability to manipulate their medium in order to express their vision. Whether you're using colored pencils, oil pastels, Adobe Photoshop, your camera, right? Everyone can take pictures. You can get the best camera, but what, what makes good pictures is, is what people decide to take pictures of, their perspective, yeah, how they the eye. color, their eye, their eye. This is how I see the world. And yeah. they're able to express it to you they, they are able to say, I see it this, and I want you to feel this. And I think good writers, with the same with a good painter, 
can make you feel something. This is really good. Like, I love that Shannon holds on to voice. And I can see that even in the way that you write and you think. And there's other things that fall in line with that. Like, for instance, I am working with a, uh, a writer, Brian Gilmore, and he's fantastic. And maybe we might even consider him a narrative designer. I and mean, that's worth talking about as well. But <laughs> We can talk about that line because I think that's a line that's fascinating. I, let's, let's talk about it in a second. And I, he loves to take everything to themes. What are the themes? And that lens of thinking is, I haven't really grokked it yet, but I so appreciate every time he brings it to themes because I learned something new about even the work that I'm creating. It will turn then into voice, but he what, starts what from theme. What is your message? What are you trying to, theme is like, what are you trying to communicate? It can be, it can be simple as the moral of the story, right? Yeah. yeah. But sometimes there's more than one thing going on, right? Yeah. Like religion and spirituality, or what happens when you take technology too far, mm -hmm. or like what happens when late state, late stage capitalist gets under, you know, goes out, you know, over control, or the surveillance state is like overpowering or whatever. And that's why dystopias are great for video games because you can get some good gameplay and with those themes, right? But when you write from theme, then you have a message and then it's all about all the different ways you can express that message. What's cool about video games, and I would say film and TV too, but especially video games, I can express those things through the story and the character and dialogue. But the combat, all the kind, different kinds of gameplay and encounters are also a really beautiful and artful way of expressing that theme that goes beyond what we think about normal literature, which is why I think game development is so exciting in terms of narrative. I mean, yeah, and one of the things we were, we were talking about earlier was, you know, the, the eye and the you know, perspective of the writer. And that, 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 you know, the question is, where are they getting their inspiration? Like, what do they, where do they draw from? And this goes back to when I was at Marvel as an editor. I was I was actually a submissions editor for a while there, and basically meant I was looking at all the the hopefuls sending in their artwork, wanting to be Marvel Comics pencilers, and you know, I, and I also went to conventions and did portfolio reviews and, and whatnot. And you know, you could always tell the artists who were just copying what they'd seen in comic books. Like they were being inspired. It was like a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox. Like, which by the way, there's no shame in that when you're starting, right? Like. We all, um, right. Well, but but you're not going to, like I said, it's like it's like a copy of a copy. The, it's the, practice. For, the practice. fidelity. Yeah. yeah, when you're a kid, that's not, but if you're a professional trying to trying to get into it as a professional, um, you know, you need to, you, you can tell the ones who are, go, who are drawing from life or drawing from, not just drawing upon that one thing that they want to do and kind of copy what they see, but they want to, that they're drawing on a deeper well of art and so you know we could always you could always see the ones that were that were taking it more seriously than just well i want to draw like jack kirby so i'm going to just i'm just going to copy jack kirby till i look just like what he draws but they're missing something underneath it the same way that you know at, at you know at cogswell we have the students who are going to be doing 3d animation we have them work and modeling we have them work in clay first you know they're not just learning the digital tool first they're not just copying what they've seen in, in the latest pixar movie they're learning the physical structure of things that are going to be translated to digital first, the foundational reference. That, that's what I'm talking about. That's so important. Understand the fundamentals of gravity and weight and poses first before you get into the next level digital phone squash and stretch and all that. Yeah. 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 Oh, and that, and, and, and speaking, you know, to what Evan is doing, 
that's the value of a writing or game design or narrative design education is you learn what works it's like it's like when you go to art school and you learn to draw like the classics like picasso could draw perfectly he chose not to later because of his voice and style but he went through that master training no doubt i've seen some of the sketches right oh definitely he didn't just like spray paint like and make it messy because he couldn't draw everything had an intention and i think that's what people for sometimes forget about writing well, you have to, yeah, you have to learn the rules before you start breaking them. Right. right? Before you know how you can break them and, and what ways it's safe to break them. And yeah. what works or not. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it, it's, uh, you have to have some experience, you have to have some experience with breaking them. And that's part of learning. So that's when I said there's no shame in like kind of learning how to draw something like someone that you drew. But if you're drawing just like somebody else, you're never going to be a creative voice. Because you're just copying someone else's creative voice. Whether that's and same, same, and same with writing. If you if you yeah, just copy your favorite writer, same same problem. You right. have to figure out how to break through, and that's where the art comes from. And that's not an that's not an easy proposition to give to people. You know, I, I feel like there's there's a lot of really good exercises people can do to try to find their voice. But I really recommend people doing that before they try to apply for competitive jobs. Because once, sometimes, you know, this is another thing is like when you submit an application to someone in a lot of writing samples and it's not up there, you're not ready yet. And I don't, and when I like to say not ready, because I don't like to say untalented or, you know, or unskilled or whatever, you're just not ready yet. A lot of artists aren't ready yet when they, when they apply, that person that looks at your stuff might remember you that way forever. So it's a really, it's really important, I think. It's something I tell people. It's like, go take risks and go after the opportunities that you want. First impressions are so important. Yeah. Yeah. Make sure that you're ready. Like, go to people that you trust. And it's so, this is a hard one. You need to find people, you need to find somebody who you you think their work is good. You respect their work to help you. The other thing is, if you don't know what you're doing is good or or not, it it probably isn't. Like, (laughs) get some I mean, no, I'm serious. Like, if you question your own work, it's not ready. Like, and like you have to, I always call it like, it's really abstract, but I always say, I'm feeling this. Like when I'm writing something and I start to smile and I'm like, ha 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 ha, I'm so fucking with my audience right now. Or like, oh, I'm going to make them feel this emotion really hard. Then I know I have something. And even if that needs a rewrite or it's not perfect, it has that thing that people want to buy. And that is what I'm selling. Okay. So I've got a question about game writing. And it seems very obvious to me when somebody understands this and somebody doesn't, but we haven't talked about it yet, which is interesting to me because we're talking about games. We're talking about game writing. Right. As a designer, as a creative director, as a design director, I am very in tune with the role of the player and the player's experience, right? There is the, the writer and the designer's intent, and that's very important, but it's meaningless without the player's interpretation and experience. I often see game writers move into a space of, I am telling a story much in the way that film tells a story or that a book tells a story. 100%, but, I see it all the time. Like yeah. Bandersnatch was a perfect example of what happens when Hollywood writing creates an interactive experience and does not actually value the player's experience through their story. Except for my ability to listen to Tangerine Dream. 
<laughs> yeah, and even then, <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was the most meaningful choice for me in that name. Which is <laughs> hilarious because I have that vinyl. I love that song. I chose that song, and then immediately in the next scene, they just play the other song that they let you choose. I don't even remember what it was, but it was just like, well, what a bullshit fucking choice. You just let me choose the one song for one scene, and you were just going to play the other song for the other scene. Like, yeah, that didn't, didn't they, make they sense. They didn't value my choice as being that meaningful. They just said, okay, cool, yeah, coin flip. You'll get the that song first. So I, I think you're like, you're on to something. You know, at Telltale, we would call it, well, a lot of people, places call it this, but it's player agency, right? And so how do you make it's like a trick it's like a mind trick and this is why i like video game writing why i feel like it's more interesting right now than film and television how do you trick the player into thinking they're driving a story right how do you write to that right where they where they're making when they make a choice the, the game reacts to it when uh like any telltale is you know a good example of a, a formula that well, it became a formula. The first Walking Dead game, which I was not on, I, I came in much later, was one, one of the first like, kind of big narrative games. And it felt like your choices mattered. Now, not all your choices matter. Eventually, you get these dialogue tree, you know, these dialogue options. And it doesn't really matter to the story what you choose. It might affect your relationships a little bit in the next scene with a line. Which is totally okay. You get like something to say. I, I'm okay with writing when, like, so Mass Effect will do this all the time, or Dragon Age, where I am given a line and a, 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 some dialogue options. I Three of those are vastly different to me in terms of expressing a reaction or right. an expression, and they all result in the same comment back from the NPC. Yeah. And it doesn't matter to me personally because well, I feel not. like I owned and expressed myself the way that I wanted to be expressed. It doesn't but feel like Mass a trick. Effect, but Mass Effect has other ways of expressing player agency. Absolutely. Where... I'm, I'm just pointing oh, out like sorry. some really minor sorry. ways where it's not meaningful to the game. I feel more in tune and immersed with the character that I'm role playing. And they're really, their dialogue choices are really fun to design and write to because you can, I, I was, like when I was writing uh, Batman, I would have like Bruce Wayne, I would have like a rail, I would call it the hot dick rail. And it would just be sort of like, I know I'm hot, and this is my boundary. So he's kind of a dick, but he's just holding his own, and then whatever, you know. And then you have like the sensitive one, and the aloof one, or whatever. Actually, kind of that was kind of the aloof one, or egotistical one. So you'd have all these rails that expressed someone's personality that I thought was really fun. Right. So but, just to just to clarify, because I don't know how many folks have heard that term before, but so at Telltale, the the, the choices were the amount of time that went into those choice designs. <laughs> was in, was immense, and that was the core of the Telltale experience, right? And so, Shannon, what you're talking about being a rail is, you know, you can choose what version of a character you want to be at any one time, and those dialogue choices would map to that that one. So there's the there's the the the, the, the asshole character, and there's always an asshole choice in every in every conversation tree, so that you always can decide I'm going to consistently be this jerk. That's that's what you mean, right? I think so. And like in my line of work, we, well, in my line of work, in my mind, in my world, I'm calling those personas, right? It's like I'm identifying yeah. a persona, I'm creating a persona. It's like a way of expressing or way of being and making sure that that persona is replicated. Yeah. And giving the player the ability to choose that. And like you said, sometimes it doesn't even matter 
if they all lead to the same result. The point is the game asked you your opinion and you expressed it, and the game allowed your characters to say it, to mm -hmm. express what you were feeling. Yep. Um, and we, you know, we, we, we look at that, you know, I, uh, I, I think it's really important. That one, of the, one of the best things that came out of my short time at Telltale, besides becoming friends with Shannon and other folks, was learning about the deep, a deep dive on choice design because Telltale really did focus on that and refined it and concentrated huge amounts of, of thought and effort into those choices to make sure that, the, that all players felt like they had a choice that felt like what they wanted to say. And, and when you only have you know three choices plus silence, that can be challenging to, to make sure that everyone feels that they got to say or do what they want to say or do. So it's that illusion of you, know, you can manip manipulate the player into feeling a certain way so that most players will want to say a certain thing. Um, you know, the, the classic video game example you know, to make sure the player is motivated is to have the bad, the bad guy show up early on and do some horrible thing, and then you get to fight them. And so you are now motivated to do this thing that otherwise would just be standard gameplay. Oh, go shoot this guy. But now it's like, no, don't just shoot this guy. Shoot this guy because they deserve it. Because you want and, to, yeah. Yeah, because you want to. And it will feel good when you do. And that's manipulation. That's what a lot of what we bring to the table is the emotional, the emotional depth to an experience that otherwise is the same you know, aim and shoot they've been doing in, in games for 20, you know, since they've been playing for 20 years. 100%. And that's, that's where it's magic to me because I will get to a point where through mechanics, I can't make the player want to do something that is against who they are, right? And yet narrative has that power to frame it in a way where you're like, you have to, <laughs> and you want to, but, or maybe right. you don't want to, but you have to, and it's the right thing to do. And the, some of the biggest challenges I've, I've come up against is when I know that the, that the design of the game has built in what I call a huge speed bump, mm -hmm. uh, something where we're going we're gonna to force the player to do something that, that they're not going to want to do, and how, how are we going to handle that? So in Marvel Ultimate Alliance 2, for example, we, we, we covered the Civil War event you know, in the Marvel comics. You know, we, we basically gave the player the choice which side to fight in the Civil War, the superhero Civil War, Iron Man's side or Captain America's side. But we, we couldn't sustain that because we couldn't create two different games, so we had to fold back with a bigger threat that would unite the heroes. Well, we had promised the player, you're going to fight for your side and you're going to win. We were going we to drag them out of that conflict to a different conflict, and I was very concerned about with, how do we get the players to want to do that. Mm -hmm. and, and recently, in, uh, in Concrete Genie, the game starts with you being this, this uh, you know, very slight, creative, but bullied uh, teenager named Ash, and these bullies are wandering around this abandoned town as you as you run around trying to accomplish things. And they 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 if they catch you, they they throw you in a dumpster and they're horrible. They say horrible things to you. And the design already had it set up so that partway through the game, you would all team up and be friends. And I was like, okay, this is going to be a challenge. This is hard, yeah. Because <laughs> the, the the not only the narrative but the game mechanics themselves are going to make the players, you know, hate these bullies. How am I going to how are we going to get them? To turn around and so that was my main focus my, my my biggest concern and so it's been so fascinating to watch people play the game online through let's play videos and, and listen to their reactions and watch them slowly get one over and be on board with it 90 percent of the time i watch them the, the players are expressing hatred toward these bullies at the beginning right. and over time all the little manipulations that we did to slowly change their minds worked and it's it's incredibly uh, difficult to to pull off, but it's also really rewarding when it works. It's, it's that's that's so magic to me. I like I it's 
like you talking about drums as being easy and I talk about drums as being hard and you talk about this thing as like little mind tricks and psycho psychology and I, I, it's just totally bewildering, bewildering, bewildering to me when I encounter a writer that can do that, especially because you, you're talking about how much, how many minutes of narrative moments do you have from that moment from the dumpster to the turn, right? But but I will say this is what you learn in narrative. So there's like a, there's a few points in here I want to make because I think you know I one hundred thousand percent agree with everything that was just said. Basically, if you look at a really good screenplay, how quickly a character arcs is fantastic, right? How one scene can make you cry and like, you know, 15 minutes of content can tell you this beautiful story and you understand it on a deep level. Um, writing is deeply psychological. And I think that's the other thing that people forget. They're like, oh, I broke things down and it's cool. I'm like, no, 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 no. How are you tapping into other people's emotions? Also writing from characters that are not yourselves is a deep exercise in empathy. You know, like how do you put yourself in like, you know, Gordon's, you know, shoes when you're writing Batman. I loved writing Gordon lines when I got a chance. And I'm like, I'm like this really bitter, like, you know, 55 year old dude who's just tired of being in Gotham. And he's like, his only person he can depend on is this guy who wears a fucking bat suit who's like borderline like a fucking criminal to help him and he's just tired he's fucking tired and he's bitter and just really feeling that that middle-aged man within myself right and connecting with it it's a deep exercise in empathy this is what i love about writers it's like gordon was fun to write for or alfred was fun to write for and you're just like wait a second what and you go no he's like seriously think about this character and it's like once you actually follow down that line of thinking you're like yeah that's a really interesting character how come i don't hear more about that a lot of my job as a writer and even a writing consultant when I'm helping other people with their stories, it is you're basically in therapy. You're asking, <laughs> what does your character really want? What yeah. do they need? Yeah. Is this really the right situation for them? What is their, what, what's their issue that they need to work out, which is what a character arc is? It's all at its heart psychology. And if you approach it that way, your writing will be so much better. If you don't think of it just like I wrote something cool, you're like, no, I wrote something that reveals something about the human condition. And also not afraid of going dark. That's the thing I see a lot with, with a, a lot of writers, especially younger ones, or people who are, have like, they're not quite integrated with their shadow yet. <laughs> they haven't but, lived a life. Shadow work is like really important. I call shadow. shadow work is really important. Getting in touch with your shadow is very important because the best fiction is pretty messed up. You know, it's violent. It, usually characters most characters that we watch and we love are like sociopaths and narcissists and they're not they're criminals in some way they have a lot of work to do on themselves and to be able to make yourself look bad and vulnerable and like a fuck up will make your writing look you don't have to make your characters look like they're perfect that's boring perfect is boring we want to see your wounds and your flaws you know, we want to see the thing that you're afraid of telling people. That's what people want to see. And you kind of have to like, you don't have to necessarily tell your personal story, but a lot of people are very precious with their, with their characters and trying to, to preserve them to, they're here. I mean, I see, I've seen it with people on Batman too, where it's just like, well, he's just a good guy and he's perfect all the time. And I'm like, the dude dresses up as a bat. Okay. He's fucked. 
right? Like, and you know, you know, and that's what makes him such a good character. That's why Batman's so dark. He has, he watched his parents get killed and now he's traumatized. And he had, you know, this is how he expresses himself. And his father figure is Alfred, Alfred, and he can't have a functional relationship with anyone. And the only woman he connects with is like another chick in a cat suit who's completely, it's a completely toxic relationship. They're just been bumping up against childhood wounds. And as soon as you start writing it from that, it sparks go off. Okay, so I totally agree with you. I love what you're okay. saying. I want to see what Evan says about the role of psychology in writing to you. Do you think it's a necessary background? It's helpful? I mean, it's, it's, I think understanding how people think and feel is important. Whether you need to have a psychology degree, I would say no. But oh, no, you, don't you, need you, have to, you have to be realistic about people and, and be honest with yourself, like Shannon was saying. Be honest with your own demons. Be, be honest with the demons you see in other people. Be honest with what you see in the world and, and express that through your characters. I mean, the, the things that the audience wants, the audience wants to believe in your world. They want to be sucked into it and, and, and not be bumped out when they stop believing it. And so that requires uh, a place that feels real with people that feel real. And like, like Shannon said, people aren't, no one's perfect. Your characters can't be perfect. I don't know if they all have to be dark and, and twisted and, 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 and fucked, but they certainly have to be imperfect and make mistakes and misunderstand each other. I try to outguess each other and, and, and fall and get back up and fail sometimes. And so, and that can actually be really challenging in a game, especially because the player doesn't want to fail, right? The player wants to feel perfect. The player wants to have their character feel perfect. And so it's a, it's a fine line to walk, but, but yeah, we try to manipulate the audience into feeling what, what we expect they should be feeling during the points of the story. So again, going back to Concrete Genie and the Bullies, one of the things that we did, very subtle thing was, you know, when I, what I, what I uh, kind of brought to the table, one of the things was to begin to show the bullies background. In other words, why are these kids like this, right? And so every time uh, these kids would grab Ash's magical brush at the same time he does, he does there would be a flashback, and and, you, and flat Ash would see a traumatic incident from the bullies that bullies past, which helped to explain kind of why they are the way they are. Even though the bullies were still being bullies, we were slowly prying open that that door to empathy, and we even changed out the barks for Ash. So. Before that first flashback, he would refer to them as jerks, and you know, to himself, where you know, he'd say, "Oh, it's the jerk patrol again." And then once that first flashback happens, we 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 swapped in a different set of barks that were just slightly less nasty. So we took away things words like jerks and more like, you know, why can't they just leave me alone? I wish they would just go away. Just little things like that to help kind of bit by bit push the player toward empathy. And we also had one of the bullies be a kid that never bullies you. He, he's like a tag-along kid. He never, uh, you know, one of the things I had to say was, can we please make sure this kid doesn't actually ever do anything mm -hmm. bad to Ash in gameplay? Mm -hmm. Because he's going to be our, he's going to be our in. Mm -hmm. He's going to be the first one that you're going to connect with. So um, we, I had to negotiate with uh, the, the gameplay folks to say, look, I, I know you have all the police chasing Ash and pushing him, but can we have this kid never do that? And those are the little things that the kind of push and pull that we do with uh, the rest of the team to accomplish these narrative goals that make the experience feel more rich. Right. I, I feel like what, when I'm selling story in terms of game narrative is how are you motivating the player to do what they're doing? Is it uh, are you, you, you do something bad to the player and now they're, you know, the player experiences that and now they're seeking revenge? 
I mean, God of War has got a really, the last, latest God of War has a really good motivation. Your wife died and she, her last request is to scatter ashes on, on this mountaintop and you've got a son to take care of. And so now you have a very specific goal and you can have gameplay, you, you can have all kinds of gameplay obstacles in your way of that goal, but it's really simple to hold on to. Um, and emotional, right? You're gonna, you're gonna pay it off at the emotional moment. The first walking season of The Walking Dead, Clementine protecting her. You know, you just you drop an adorable child, a young little girl, during a zombie apocalypse in your in your lap, and you're telling the player, you have to protect this person. Now you have a motivation for the player. Now, are you going to reach every single player doing this? No, but the people who are going to continue to play are going to buy into it. And I think this is going back to this point that we've talked before about how do we integrate the sort of screenwriting, you know, author curated storytelling with player agency. And it's providing a place for the player to role play as someone, right? When you're writing Bruce Wayne lines or Selena, you know, if you're if you were writing as Catwoman, which we never did, which I would, I would have loved of mm-hmm. us to, you you're still that character. There's a range within that character, but Bruce Wayne's never going to act like the Joker, right? And so the player can't do whatever they want, but they can do whatever they want within the role playing space that you're providing them. And I think that's where the sort of curated character creation and storytelling meets the player agency. And, and, and that's where, and that's sort of, that's where the magic, where the game happens, the narrative. Um, and if someone's not interested in that narrative, they're not going to play your game and you can't get everyone. But the people who are interested in your narrative, they're going to role play. Most people want to role play as somebody else. That's, that's, that's literally my philosophy on it. People are okay with role playing as long as you, they feel like they have choice within it. You're fine. I mean, Joe, you, you must you must also when you're designing, you know, gameplay elements or levels, you know, you're, you're also going for something you want the player to feel, right? I mean, in terms of challenge and speed of combat and all those different things are designed to evoke an emotional and, and a visceral reaction from the player, right? I mean, yeah, totally, totally different. Uh, no, it's it's a hundred percent the same in terms of where I am now as a designer. Like when I started out, I thought I could make a perfect game without story, without art. I could just have squares and circles, and that's all I would ever need. <laughs> and um, Like Tetris? It, like Tetris, right. It, would be, it was such a, like, a mathematical, rational sort of thinking of, like, I don't need emotion necessarily to, like, or emotions coming out of the game for the player to experience emotion. And that's an interesting kind of reductive thought exercise and even maybe a like mechanical exercise, but in the end, games are so much better when they have story. If I put eyes on those squares and circles and start give them a relationship, if I'm trying to actually evoke emotion, narrative and story and art are incredibly important. And I ran into this so cleanly on the wrong side of it where I was trying to create conflict for Lara Croft. And this is before the reboot. And in fact, it was because of my venting <laughs> of how difficult Lara Croft was to create conflict for that fueled a lot of the reboot. Because I was pulled into combat design role for, for her Tomb Raider 8, which was Underworld. It was the last one in the sort of like older style. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those on-fire situations. They had gone into the game saying, okay, we really didn't do combat well in Tomb Raider 7, which was the Tomb Raider Legend, I think. We're going to make sure we don't repeat those same mistakes in Tomb Raider 8. Lo and behold, they're back in the same boat with six months to go. They've got a bunch of cool enemies or whatever, but Lara is just... They've written her as 
invincible. And it's like they wanted her to be Batman without the parent issues, without the dark secret. They wanted her to be James Bond without any weaknesses whatsoever. No, no, yeah, no pathos. There was a mantra on the team, and I would run up against this mantra all the time. I was like, well, okay, cool. I'm going to give Lara, you're going to get, you get for this level, two weapons. And you get to select those two weapons based on what she's unlocked. And each weapon has a base amount of ammo, and there's only so much ammo that we're going to, like, litter throughout the level. And the creative director would come back and say, hmm, but remember the mantra, what would Lara do? And it was like the what would Jesus do thing, but he'd he'd take it back and be like, Lara would never move into a combat encounter without enough ammo or without enough weapons. And Lara has infinite wealth and resources. Why would she ever move into a space without those things? And there was just a sense like she's infinitely smart. She's infinitely wealthy. She's infinitely capable and confident. And so there was like, well, okay, she can't get a headshot when she's doing a triple sow cow backflip. And then they're like, no, no, no. Lara could totally do that. <laughs> they're like, okay, when she's climbing and a tiger is going after her, she can't shoot. And they'd say, mm, Lara could totally climb and shoot a tiger. And I was trying to design combat encounters where like <laughs> the tiger could at least give her some threat, but all the player would have to do is just run Lara to a ledge climb on the edge where the tiger can't get to her and then shoot the tiger in the face. And it was sort of like this ridiculous battle with the creative direction mantra of what would Lara do? And I was just like... Because she was perfect. Because she's perfect in every fucking way. Which is incredibly boring. So I was like, we need to to break her of her infinite sort of wealth, power, capability, whatever. So we made her younger. We... We cut her hair because that was like signifying to the studio. We did a concept art where where she cuts her braid off on the island that she's shipwrecked on. Where we're gonna shipwreck her so she's stranded from all of her resources. We're gonna make her younger so she's not as confident. She may still be capable at the end of the game, but she's not gonna be as confident. She doesn't have guns, weapons. She has to sort of craft things out of whatever is around, and it's a game about survival and finding herself. And that's how the reboot happened. It's so weird that you have that experience, but I, I bumped into the same thing where it's just like the player is per- must be perfect and invincible, therefore that's what we have to make. But the truth is, and maybe I'm just speaking to myself, my favorite games is, you know, ones I have to level up and learn skills at that's hard, that it takes me a few to try to get through a level. I mean, I think Minecraft is a good example of that, right? Like if you play in survival and you're just dropped in a world, you have no resource, you have no idea what you're doing, you have to like, chop wood and from the and make make axes and pickaxes and then get stone and find and you have to you have to find shelter for yourself and i mean i remember my first zombie encounter i had no idea what was going on but just there were no <laughs> instructions except for youtube and i'm just like punching a zombie in the face you know like with my hands i had i was just like what is going on and it, that game has such a, an amazing skill tree to it I think you could build a computer in that game with redstone if you get really good at it. I mean, that game is insane, it's, but that's what makes it cool because I feel like I'm always, I have to figure my way out of a problem and it's mine to figure out. So now my brain is doing something rather than having the, a game designer tell me, you're perfect and invincible. You don't really actually have to do anything to get through this game. It's the I mean, this is, yeah. you know, it's, believe it or not, this is taking me back all the way back to my early days at Marvel when I was the assistant editor on the Barbie comics. You were not. I was. Oh my was. god! I mean, my my right now, my like you know eight year old self is like you know fanning. 
betting, I think. I, I, I can't tell you what we went through trying to produce Barbie comics when nothing had ever been done like that before. Barbie was a doll, and all we had to go by was this style guide with like eight pictures of, of, of Barbie that were hand... But no, they were very nicely illustrated. They were. She all had this. She had this blank, same blank expression on her face, the smile that she had as a doll. And we were trying to tell stories about Barbie, visual stories. And we kept bumping up against Mattel because Barbie could do no wrong. Right. Barbie no could conflict. Make no mistakes. Yeah. No conflict. Yeah. And without conflict, you don't have a story. Yeah. And and so we 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 were really at loggerheads until we eventually figured out Barbie's got a niece called Skipper. Let's have Skipper be the screw up, yeah. And Barbie can fix things, and that's, that's she's the, the agent. We, <laughs> yeah. And that's the pattern we fell into is that you know we couldn't um, we couldn't have Barbie screw up, but we could have Skipper, who they had no problem with Skipper screwing up. So we would have Skipper screw up, and then Barbie had to had to kind of swoop in and and figure things out. So yeah, it, it's like the the perfect protagonist is is the worst kind of protagonist. This is why Marvel comics emerged in the '60s. You know, out of nowhere, versus like a Superman who who was you know didn't have any personal problems, didn't have any weaknesses apart from kryptonite. I mean, whereas then you have you have Peter Parker who you know is a, a teenager, he's tortured, he caused his own uncle's death because of his greed, and 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 he's um, you know he, he makes mistakes. No, he's you know he, he's his, his, he can't get a girlfriend. He's his homework's overdue. Like these are personal problems, and so. This is what ignited Marvel Comics in the '60s was this idea of the imperfect superhero. Mm -hmm. So I will, I will disagree with you on Superman just a little bit. Superman, the, the Christopher Reeve Superman movies were my favorite movies from like. No, no, I mean, I mean, like in 19, 1960s action comics. comics. Yeah, action yeah, comics. No, I, I get, I get what you're saying. I, I feel like for me, when I watch Superman, like his main conflicts are he's an alien, he wants to be human. He has this like cover job as a journalist, but he's not that good at it. He's kind of like this, so he's got to be he's shy and socially awkward, and he's not very effective at work. And he's got a crush on like the star reporter, because even though he's Superman, he's not actually a very good reporter. You, I mean, you're, as a writer, I'm sure you can make a good Superman in the way that Alan Moore did with Supreme. I, I think, but but I mean, like 1962 Action Comics didn't have any of that stuff, right? He was a he was a very good reporter. He liked Lois Lane, but he wasn't tortured about it. He was almost all powerful, never made mistakes. I mean, you're you're right that that the Superman we, we got later, I think, was affected by Spider Man and the Fantastic Four and all the and the Incredible Hulk and all the things that Marvel did that helped us understand that even superheroes have problems that we can relate to and challenges and they make mistakes. It makes for a yeah, better I mean, story, I, I, it makes for better gameplay. It's just like and I think to what you're talking about even Shannon about Minecraft it's kind of like 90% of the games out there at least the ones that I've been working on for most of my life and playing are about power progression and there's this mechanical progression there's a power progression there's a power fantasy that we have been selling every game player out there sorry I just smacked my table but um getting excited uh, it, and it's important to me to tell stories that aren't always about power progression because I think it's kind of a false fantasy it's not like the real world works in that way all the time. So yeah, I mean, so this is, this is, and this is something I've bumped in, this is actually a pet peeve of mine. This is something I've bumped into a lot because 
I find the most interesting characters are flawed. The most interesting characters have room for growth or they're vulnerable in some way. And I remember when I was working on, so I worked on, I worked on the story in, in writer's room and all the, 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 first, the last season of Walking Dead at the tel, at Telltale before the layoff. And I went on to a ghost story. And one of my original pitches for it, but production just couldn't do this, was to the idea that at some point in the game, Clementine gets crippled, like misery crippled. Um, and she's and she's held up in a house in which she doesn't know the people who are, you know, tending to her, you know, late in a zombie apocalypse. So she's limping. Like, it's hard for the player to move. They got to figure out their way around the house to figure out what's going on. And there's that sense of having to hurry back to where you were, make things look like they're okay, or there'll be consequences, choice consequences, like character consequences. And a lot of this actually just came from misery, to be honest. Because I, I remember, you know, I, I love that movie on a lot of different levels, also a writing level, which Evan and I can talk about later. But um, there's a reason it's called Misery. <laughs> and I, that game to me, I mean, that movie to me was really interesting because here he is, you talk about like low budget, he's in a room, he's got Kathy Bates watching him. And at some point he, he figures out she's crazy and now he's got to limp and like kind of crawl his way through the house to find a way out, right? And then get back to his room and pretend everything is okay and to me starting the player in that place and letting them rehabilitate themselves putting them in that kind of vulnerable pos position is much more thrilling than giving me infinite power much more thrilling i mean i think that's why the, a lot of the resident evil games are, are fun too they'll give you weapons but can't have horror a game horror. without like a incapable player at some point it's like the controls have to be bad you have to be slow you have to be limited in resources Otherwise, the player's just not going to be scared. Right. And maybe that's something and maybe that's something I just gravitate towards as a player. I, I need to feel thrilled a little bit. I don't, I don't need this to be, I don't want this to be super easy. To get through this level, I want to feel like I really earned it and I had to think about it deeply. My strategy for getting out of whatever horrible situation that I'm in, I had to manage my resources. Um, and that when I beat that, finally beat that level boss, you know, we'll just say level boss is kind of a, you know, a way that games are designed. I really earned it. It wasn't just because I was perfect. I had to figure out everything I needed to, to save, all the resources I needed, where I needed to go, how I needed to, to fight them. And I guess you could talk to more about this, Joe, like how do you create those scenarios? Because those to me are like the the most fulfilling scenarios and it'll be the reason why I continue with the game rather than stop it and find another game, personally. It's the most expensive part because it requires everybody in concert putting it together. Um, it's pro I'd say 20% of the calls I get as a consultant are fix our boss battles and then I immediately tell them, <laughs> I immediately tell them like, hey, a boss battle is gonna take a whole team four months just to do one and then they all look at each other and they go how much time do you have and they go six months and we have 12 boss battles or whatever the answer <laughs> is and i just go okay um and they go what if there are mini bosses and i say it's still a boss battle it's it's just sort of like there's this back and forth it's bargaining. It's bargaining. there's a lot of bargaining that happens and i just go uh you're gonna need the animator that does the boss you're gonna need the gameplay designer still you're the combat designer but now you need a level designer you need a writer and hopefully you've been selling the fact that the boss is the boss for a while so that the player understands what their work going up against like you kind of want the boss to like be 
I mean, can we swear on this podcast? I don't know if I've yes, I probably. Yes, I think we. Are, I think we already have. Pretty sure. Yeah. Right? You need the boss to be fucking with the player the entire time, so that you know that he's the boss. Like it's like if I watch Star Wars, your opinions of Star Wars are whatever they may be. Darth Vader shows up really early. You understand that guy is the boss, and so you need that kind of like handsome Jack in your ear antagonizing you all the time so that the, by the time you get to him you're like I am ready for this fight because I've been poked at and damaged and w worked against and seen sort of like all the effects of you all the way through. It's also building up of that anticipation suspense right? Totally and I think yeah. a lot I mean, of teams just want a lot of teams just want to go and place boss boom like you've gone through our puzzles platform or whatever underwater level boom boss and it's just like that that doesn't really tell a story well but i think what the interesting thing about that is that and, and maybe you can speak to this more deeply is the skills that you pick up in a level right it's all tied together up. right yeah it, it requires a lot together, of right? it, it requires heavy orchestration and i don't think like if teams are treating it like an RPG, they're just like, oh yeah, you just got a like higher level sword, so the boss is gonna just take more damage. It's, that doesn't make a boss battle. I feel like to me the best, the sort of more more satisfyingly design, designed games uses everything I just learned in that level or the last few levels, whatever right. skills I need to learn to beat that boss. Because now I feel like everything I've done, or most of what I, like a percentage of what I've done, serves a purpose. And you know the game. The game was designed, <laughs> yeah, with that in mind. It wasn't just like we're gonna throw this here and this here. And now you're gonna do this. It was like no, 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 no. This has been premeditated and designed and curated, so everything you're learning is gonna pay off. Yeah, I think good boss battles require writers, and good boss battles require a back and forth of gameplay, game mechanics working with writers, hand and glove, back and forth until you finally land on something that works really well. Because if you just wrote a story and I was just making mechanics, they would not really actually meet together. You, you would have a beautiful moment at the end of the game, but the player wouldn't actually feel it. Yeah, I mean, it's like if you took a... I'll just like pull something out of my ass. Like if you took a, a movie like Willow. You guys remember Willow? Mm -hmm. I'm going to say no. Of course I do. With Mad Mardigan. Yeah. Val Kilmer playing Mad Mardigan. It's Badass great. Badass spiky sword. You're right, and like if you were making, if you let's say we were to take that narrative, the base of that narrative, make a video game of it. This is kind of a fun thought experiment. And you're playing as Willow. Your your one of your game main game mechanics as him is going to be magic. He starts off as someone who wants to be a magician, a sorcerer, and he's not. At the end of the movie, he's a sorcerer. He he has to learn to be a sorcerer. So now you have a game mechanic to play with that has to do with the character motivation and their arc. And I think that's. Probably where a lot of the magic happens. So, I mean, listen, some some characters are just brutes and they're strong and they're good at shooting or they're good at fighting. But if you can you can provide that arc, I think you've got some magic. But it all has to, you're right, like you said, it all has to work together. Everyone has to be of the same mind and understand why narrative wants it this way and and then have narrative also kind of like accommodate what design can do. Yeah, it's a push pull. Like I was saying, I mean, you have that. You have that kind of. Sometimes design wants the player to feel a certain way, and, and narrative steps up and say, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna compound that this way." Or sometimes narrative, like I was saying, narratively, I really want this thing. Can we change the gameplay so it works just this slightly different way to avoid this problem? 
and a narrative problem. And so there's got to be that that kind of hand in glove effort, like you were saying, Joe, and like, you know, not letting design get too far away from narrative and not letting narrative get too far away from design, working lockstep together. Yeah. For me, it really drives home the point that we are creating a product for a player experience. And it's not that we are siloing into our specializations as if like design is the end all level design is the end all narrative art animation it's like everything is creating an experience and i i've been able to at least speak to this to some designers well by just talking about theater in the 90s i saw a phantom of the opera like everybody else and it was actually really amazing it wasn't there wasn't a curtain closing moment between every scene they were actually transitioning based on the one scene would end with like the phantom climbing a ladder and you'd watch him and suddenly you'd stop paying attention to the rest of the stage. And as you're watching the phantom climb and the lights go dark, suddenly the spotlight goes in the bottom right of the stage and you're just like, oh my God, they've completely set, changed the set. And they held my attention in this one corner. For like It all happened in front of me and yet I didn't even know it was happening. And it's just the pacing of it and the theatrical and the presentation of it was all about me as the audience not not seeing it like like magician right like hand is uh, faster than the eye or whatever the, like it's it's all about the audience and it's all about the player and if we think it's all about ourselves as whatever role we play in games then we've lost sight of the end goal and end scene. Thought Joe's analogy of video game development as theater was a perfect place to wrap up this bonus track from our video game development virtual happy hour series. Both Evan and Joe were such incredible guests. I really hope to have them back on soon. And I hope that you learned something about video game writing and design. If you're enjoying this content, please subscribe. And if you have any questions for us or a topic that you would really like us to cover in this series, please write your suggestions in the comment section of our SoundCloud page. You can also tweet them to at EvilShannon. And how you spell that is at E-V-I-L-S-H-A-N-O-N. See you next time on The Edge.